0: God's handiwork of creation is displayed throughout the earth in the natural beauty that we enjoy. One area rich in breathtaking views of magnificent splendor is the state of Alaska. Stay tuned.
1: There's just uh, so much to see in Alaska because the biology does not cover up the geology.
0: This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Alaska is the popular native term for Alaska, and it means the great land. Alaska truly is a great land, stretching over half a million square miles with a coastline extending to over 6,500 miles. With its abundant wildlife, beautiful trees, and glacier-filled bays, Alaska is a nature-lover's paradise. However, the average visitor to the state may not realize that this great land is a geological gem and a massive testimony to Noah's flood. How is that possible? Come with us for the next 15 minutes for part one of a two-part special exploring the last frontier, the land of the midnight sun, the great land, Alaska. This week, we'll focus on the geology of America's 49th state, and we'll learn about Alaska's unique plant life. Next week, we'll discuss Alaska's fascinating wildlife. ICR geologist Dr. Steve Austin says... Although many, many visitors enjoy the usual tourist attractions in Alaska, there's a magnificence to the place that most people do not experience.
1: Well, there's more to Alaska than just a cruise ship. And there's more to Alaska than just renting a car in Anchorage and driving around on a few roads, which they hardly have in Alaska. And uh, there's more to geology than the uh, pipeline that goes to the North Slope where they uh, have all the oil wells. And there's more to geology of Alaska than just just the placer gold mining. And uh, there's more to geology of Alaska than just watching out for bears, uh, grizzly bears and things. So Alaska is an amazing place. What I discovered is that Alaska needs to be experienced directly, and you can't do it by car or cruise ship. Uh, you need to have basically a bush pilot take you around to Alaska and there's more planes in Alaska than there are cars and so uh, I went I went flight seeing essentially in Alaska not sightseeing flight seeing. Of course it comes as
0: no surprise that as a geologist Dr. Austin is mostly fascinated with the mountains of the last frontier.
1: I've seen some of the most incredible geology I think I've ever seen and I've been around the world looking at geology but Alaskan geology is the Primo geology. Now in California, we look up at the Sierra Nevada mountains and we see the tree line at 9,000 feet elevation, and then we look up and we see Mount Whitney, 14,494 feet. And so we see exposed geology very well in high mountains. But in Alaska, tree line is at 1,000 feet elevation we have 18,000-foot mountains in Alaska, right? So we can see enormous amount of geology. And uh, because of the polar climate and tree line being so low, there's just so much to see in Alaska. Because the biology does not cover up the geology, and so we see, the, we see exposures three or four times the thickness that's visible in Grand Canyon. But what's really amazing about this great land is how it formed. One other thing about Alaska that makes it extremely interesting to a geologist is it's the head-on collision between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. Now, during Noah's flood, there was a great shifting of the ocean floor, and it shifted toward North America directly into Alaska. And this plate shift that occurred created a head-on collision in Alaska. Now, those of us who are geologists in the Western United States, like in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're accustomed to seeing the mountains that are formed by an oblique collision, a kind of a sideways collision. The Pacific plate collided not head-on with California, Oregon, Washington. It collided in a kind of a horizontal uh, sideways collision. And this sideways collision has created some very interesting mountains in California and Oregon and Washington, but nothing like is there in southern Alaska. So just what happened when
0: Ocean Floor and this part of North America met?
1: If you have a collision, like uh, between two vehicles, what can happen? A piece of a bumper can uh, be transferred to the other car. You know what I mean? Uh, Collisions happen like that. Some of the paint scraped off. Maybe uh, some of the hardware gets uh, implanted in the other vehicle. But in Alaska, we see the whole front-end bumper of the Pacific Ocean plate welded or slammed into North America. It looks like pieces of the Pacific plate, when they collided, most of it was subducted. It was shoved down into the earth. But parts of it didn't subduct, and so they collided and rose. And so the rising and the colliding, so the uh, under-thrusting essentially of the Pacific Plate underneath Alaska dislodged pieces that actually rose into forming mountains. Therefore,
0: if there had been no worldwide flood back in Noah's day, there would be no Alaska
1: today. The major part of Alaska is uh, pieces of bumper of the uh, Pacific Plate that collided with uh, North America. And Alaska wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the collision. It would have been ocean floor. It would have, would have stayed ocean floor. Because of the collision, it made Alaska. The collision made Alaska. So that is fascinating. And the national parks like Wrangell, St. Elias National Park, and Denali, okay, with Mount McKinley, those those national parks are there. And they are places that are a premier geologically and so uh, I I found it very important to go there.
0: So far we've learned some amazing things about the geology of Alaska but as retired ICR biologist Dr. Ken Cumming tells us the plant biology of the great land has a lot to offer as well. He tells us about the flora of this arctic environment and explains that most of the trees are not the broadleaf deciduous kind but rather are evergreens. We call
2: that kind of a forest, a boreal forest, or another term for it is taiga, T-A-I-G-A. Plants that are associated in that kind of forest are mainly spruce, and so they are needle plants, not broadleaf plants. So when we talk about what's occurring in Alaska, we see banding toward the north. There is the tundra or even the ice fields. Then moving down into these low-growth forms of tundra plants, which are extensive, and their limitation is mainly by temperature and the permafrost. And then we move into the boreal forest, which has a capacity for developing, even though there are extremes in temperature and moisture.
0: But just how do these trees survive the frigid winter months in Alaska? Dr. Cummings says the very way they're designed makes them suited for the colder northern regions. The plants themselves are well adapted toward these harsh winters
2: and cold climates by the needles rather than the broadleaf uh, leaves. The needles are such that they are always being formed and to some degree being dropped. So whereas the broadleaf plants Typically, will drop by this process of cleavage of the leaves from the stems. The needles also will drop, but extended over a long period of time. The needles themselves are embedded in uh, have a lot of resin in them, so that they are very resistant to the freezing component of the uh, normal broadleaf. As a result, we have the capacity for these needles to withstand the long seasons, the long cold, dark winters of the north. In addition, they have the capacity to adapt to this unusual kind of ground cover where you have lots of ice, lots of cold temperatures, and poor soils. Um, That means
0: that they can exist in an acidic environment. The cellular structure of plants is another design feature which ensures their survival through the frozen winter months. Most plants have a cell wall around them, so they have a capacity to sort of
2: pack in uh, their nutrients and their naturally occurring antifreeze materials to keep their protoplasm in a state that's protected during the harsh times and during the low moisture and low temperature periods of time. These conditions are such that plants have the capacity At least some of them have the capacity to withstand these unusual extremes in moisture and moisture in the sense of wet times versus drought times and temperatures, modest temperatures down to low temperatures. So they do it by uh, building into the surroundings. They're these resins and the antifreeze kind of molecules that protect them from developing ice crystals. So they just go into a dormancy during these periods. And as long as the crystals don't break up their life molecules, their DNA and and RNA, then they can withstand these kinds of temperatures in order to be restored.
0: Still, other types of plants survive the bitter cold of winter by different means. Typically, the flowering plants are annuals, so they will produce their
2: seeds in a very short space of time. They'll blossom, produce their seeds, and drop them, and they'll be ready for the next summer period. On the other hand, the mosses and the different kinds of ground plants that are typical of sphagnum bogs they, they are long-lasting, they're perennials, and they'll withstand it by the antifreeze capacity for building in resistance to the freezing activity
0: they have shallow depth roots so they don't have to be bothered by the ice packs underneath the ground it's amazing to think about the incredible ability of Alaskan plant life to survive long cold winters and it's fascinating to realize that the great land would not even exist if it weren't for Noah's flood but even more important than knowing about Alaska's biology and its geologic testament to the Flood, is realizing what's going to happen to the world in the time yet to come. Dr. Austin explains that God will once again judge the world because of its wickedness, but this time it will be very different from the first time.
1: Second Peter chapter 3 tells us the world that then was being deluged with water perished, and it, it tells us about the world before the Flood. And Alaska is definitely a picture of the world before the flood and the great upheaval that's occurred since the flood. And then Second Peter chapter 3 also contains the fire. It's a fire next time. The heavens and earth are reserved for fire for the day of judgment. And God is going to purify the world and make a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And he's asking that all men come to repentance. That's right here in that passage in 2 Peter 3. He wants men to respond and women to respond to him to understand the important things that have happened in the past and this important event in the future, the coming of, of the Lord Jesus to earth and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He wants us to keep those things in our mind.
0: As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR? The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien.